Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. First Samuel chapter 5, start in verse 1. When the Philistine captured the ark of God, they brought... They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the, peop- the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. But Ashdod did both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, 
And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send it, if you send away the ark of, ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And why? And they said, "What is the guilt offering?" that we shall return to him. They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the, and the Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, they did not send the people away and they, and they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cow to the cart, but take their cows home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering then send it off and let it go its way and watch if it goes up on it if it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh then it is he who has done us this great harm but if not then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us it happened to us by coincidence the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Bethshemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the Lord of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them 
upon the great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five and when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Thank you, Isaac. Well, we remember once again that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's ask his help as we look at this passage of scripture, please. Father, we come before you and we, Lord, just uh, are amazed to consider these events that happened uh, 3,000 years ago and yet we see, um, Lord, your power and your might, but we also see, Lord, your, your mercy and kindness in many ways as well. And, Lord, that you are truly king of, of all kings, and there is no God beside you. And so I pray that as we consider these events, and, Lord, the, the uh, truths that they uh, hold, that you would open our understanding, that we would praise you as the Lord of Lords, God, that you would expose even in our own hearts and minds idols that we may have, things that we may look to as a form of comfort or strength. Lord, that you would expose that in us, that we would be wholly devoted to you. And uh, Lord, even as we consider your work among the nations, we marvel that you, uh, Lord, have called not only people from the Jews, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this was your plan, even in the beginning, and so we marvel to see this unfolding uh, throughout history in various ways. We ask you, guide us now in our thoughts. My words would be a blessing and encouragement to your people, and that your spirit would be at work, not only in um, my speaking, but also in the hearing of your word this morning. We ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Well, this morning the uh, title is uh, Philistia Bows Before Yahweh. And we remember last week the scene ended in a very gloomy, dark way, which seemed to be a complete defeat of Israel. And from all appearances, their God had actually gone into exile, taken by the Philistines, in which was represented by the Ark of the Covenant You know, sometimes when you talk about Christ in the workplace or maybe in the marketplace or perhaps you uh, talk to somebody on the street, uh, maybe at the post office, you're waiting in line and and there's opportunity to to talk about the Lord. Uh, Sometimes people respond with, "Why why don't you save that for church? We don't talk about Jesus out here. I don't want to hear it in the workplace. I don't want to hear it in the grocery store. I don't want to hear about Jesus in the post office. That's something that you guys can just do in church. And uh, even if seen police officers treat, you know, street evangelism that way. This is something you guys can do in church, but don't bring your God out here. And especially if you have the audacity to call other religions pagan, and to say that they are wrong and that they actually need to repent and turn from their false gods and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, well, in our day, that is simply arrogant. And that is definitely not tolerated to call any other religion 
uh, wrong or false. But in our, in our passage this morning, we are reminded in a very clear way that God is the God of the nations. He is not only the Lord of Israel, he's not just a tribal deity as their little idol Dagon, but he actually can claim rights to every people, every nation, because he has made everything and he sustains everything by the word of his power. And so God is God over all the nations and there is none beside him. And so last week, what looked to be a, uh, a devastating defeat and in many ways was for the people of Israel. They lost uh, 44,000 fighting men in battle to the Philistines. Their two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were killed in battle because they were told to bring the ark as a sort of good luck charm in the war against Philistia. And Eli, the, the high priest at the time, also died from shock as he heard the news that the ark was taken. And the scene ended with the wife of Phineas hearing of what had happened, going into premature labor, also dying. But before she dies, names her son Ichabod, which means where is the glory or the glory has departed. As far as Israel was concerned, this may have been the end of the covenant with God, the end of the promises. Their God had been exiled into the camp of the enemy. And there was no plan to send a troop in to try and retrieve the ark. There was no retaliation. We're told all of Philistia, or sorry, all of Israel retreated each to their own home. And yet we find that the story does not end there. Something unexpected and yet incredible begins to happen. God does battle against the Philistines and against the false god Dagon without the help of Israel and single-handedly brings the nation to their knees before the God of Israel. And how does God display his power over the Philistines? Well, this morning, I want to look at three primary ways from our our passage of scripture here this morning, three primary ways that God displays his power over the nations, specifically over this nation, uh, which we know as the Philistines. First of all, God dismantles their false deity, Dagon, and quite literally dismantles him. The scene is, is remarkable. It's one of those scenes where you probably hear as a child, maybe you've been reading through the Bible and you come across this story and you think, that is, that, is, that is such a crazy story. I mean, I don't think even Hollywood themselves could come up with such a scene as what has unfolded here. That the, the, the Philistines would have thought they have won a great victory. You could just imagine the rejoicing and the celebrating and the, the parties that were planned for the following day. They had won a mighty victory and they had taken the Ark of the Covenant, something that had been with Israel for over 400 years since God had given Moses the instruction on the mountain to build the ark and to put the, the, the tablets, the, the commandments within it. And, and, and this represented God's presence with his people. This has never happened. It has never been exiled out of Israel. The Philistines surely had won the war to end all wars. And yet what they didn't realize is they actually brought home a hornet's nest. 
They brought the ark that belonged to the God who is a consuming fire. And so we have this scene. They arrogantly place the ark at the foot of their false god, this statue, which we don't know exactly what Dagon would have looked like. Apparently one of the the gods of the Canaanites. And they place the ark of God in this position of defeat, as it were, at the feet of Dagon, in the temple of Dagon, as though to say they had finally confined the God of Israel, this mighty God who they knew to destroy the people of Egypt. Remember when when the ark came into the camp and uh, the people of Israel began shouting and when the Philistines realized what had happened, that this ark came in, we're taught, we find in chapter 4 and uh, verse 7, they were afraid. They said, a God has come into the camp. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened. These are the gods, they said, who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So they're aware of the history, history that happened hundreds of years ago, and yet they're still talking about this God of Israel who, who destroyed the Egyptians because, you see, the Philistines also warred against the Egyptians as a seafaring people often would come along the coastlines and, and attacking other nations. But they knew the stories, and there was a sense of fear and trembling. So in their minds, they had subdued this God, this God that defeated Egypt and and, and took out the nations before Israel as they came into the promised land. And they themselves no doubt thought, we are, for, are far superior even to Israel themselves. But then this strange thing happens. They come back in the morning, no doubt to maybe gloat over their trophy of war, this ark of, of God that is now in their temple at the feet of Dagon, and yet as they open the door, they are met with the shocking surprise that their idol has fallen face down before the ark. Well, that's strange. Was there an earthquake last night? Was there some wind, a storm? Maybe, maybe that uh, our idol, maybe it was on a little uneven ground and we just didn't realize it. So let's pick up our God. We'll put him back on the shelf And uh, we'll just call it a a random occurrence of of strange events. And they go back and then the next day they come again. And we find that now not only has this idol fallen face down, but the head of this idol has been cut off and the hands of this idol have been cut off. And this is clearly a sign even throughout the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, that when there was a defeat, it was a sign of victory to cut off the head of the enemy and at times the hands. We find this even as we think of David and Goliath after David slays the giant. You remember uh, children David comes against this warrior of, of the Philistines and with his sling slays the giant by the help of the Lord and then he takes the sword of Goliath and cuts off the head of the giant as an indication that he has been defeated. So this is an indication, even in their minds, that our God has just been destroyed. He's defeated. His head has been cut off. His hands have been cut off. Now there's just this kind of block of wood laying in the temple as the God of Israel has completely dismantled their deity. Sadly, though, the Philistines, instead of abandoning their God, they make the threshold of their temple sacred 
And so now we have this picture because their idol had laid on the ground in the threshold. Apparently they must have begun jumping over the threshold or something. I'm not quite sure how they would get into the temple while not touching the threshold. And, and so you can just imagine from that point forward, the Philistine priests now having to jump into the room because of this idol that had fallen down before the Ark of God. It really is a, vili- a, a vivid uh, picture of the, the folly of idolatry, the foolishness of it. And even in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 8, we read, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. This is the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And throughout the Old Testament, God actually very clearly mocks those who carve idols out of wood and set them up as some form of deity. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 10 says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. And then Jeremiah goes on to say, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought up from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen in the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is is violet and purple. They are all skilled workmen. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Jeremiah is pointing out the foolishness of idolatry. You, you literally chop down a tree and you have to nail it down in place so it can't move. And yet you set this up as an idol, as a god, as something that's going to protect you and do good to you. In Isaiah 44, another famous passage, we, we have God again pointing out the foolishness of idolatry. That they'll cut down a tree and then from part of this tree we cook our food in the fire to warm ourselves Another part of the tree that we carve and make into a so-called God and then we bow down and and worship it. It's foolishness. It's vanity. I know today we may feel that humanity has maybe in some ways advanced beyond such foolishness as to bow down to carved images. And yet idol worship is very much alive and well throughout the world. In fact, something as simple as even a supposed picture of Christ or the Catholic idea of praying to a saint or all of the various relics, this becomes a form of idolatry. We're told not to make a graven image. This is, this is one of the, the, in the first table of the law, no other gods before me. Do not make graven images. 
It could be something as simple as a picture, as an image, or a carving. Making an image that we convince ourselves represents God to us is likened to what the Philistines are doing here. And God shows himself supreme over the gods of the nations. The foolishness of idolatry. And we can even today find images of of maybe Buddha in many uh, gift shops or on the home decor aisle as though this is a, a normal thing to set up in your home. Native spiritualism today is popularized in school and by governments today. Even when I was doing my last year of trade school there, there was, uh, I walked into the auditorium there at the campus and I thought I smelled smoke. And I was like, that's weird. I thought this was, a, you know, no smoking campus. They make the, the, those that are smoking go out and stand basically on the road to smoke their, their cigarettes. And uh, they, you know, are very proud of this. And, uh, and, and yet here we have, you know, I could smell smoke, something burning in the auditorium. And I go over and here there's supposedly this little uh, smudge that's happening where you can, I don't know, get in touch with some kind of spiritual being or something. And because it's under the guise of native spiritualism, now this is a good thing. This is something we want to praise. This is something you should do. Even my teacher, I kind of asked him about it. He's like, well, he's like no, this is good. I, I went to, you know, uh, smudge earlier today and I feel great, you know. And, and, and this, is, this is the same thing, repackaged in maybe a more acceptable manner today. Our politicians are just as happy to acknowledge the resurrection of Christ as they are a fast to the false god Allah. And we know as Canadians that we pride ourselves on being multicultural. We make rooms for all kinds of religions and false gods. But here we're reminded that God is the God of the nations. There is no God besides him. He alone is worthy of praise. He dismantles the false gods of mankind. And as Christians, we have to be so careful. We have to be uh, cautious about the, the things that we give ourselves to. We must distance ourselves from any, any form of idolatry, of, of, uh, of an image that we look to as representing God to us, or wearing a piece of jewelry, even a cross that we think somehow brings us good luck or gives us some sense of protection against the forces of evil. It's idolatry. Psalm 52, 7, the psalmist says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. That is a very graphic picture of idolatry, which can be something as simple as even riches. It doesn't have to be in the form of an idol or a picture. Maybe it's in a bank account. Maybe it's in a certain amount of retirement savings or a vehicle or a house. Anything in which we begin to find a sense of comfort and joy apart from the living God. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with saving for retirement or having money in the bank or a nice house. But you see, those things should really direct our praise to God and and, and cause us to give thanks to God because it is from him that every good and perfect gift comes. But when we begin to forget about God and look to these things to give us um, strength and joy and comfort and peace, well, then we are forming a sort of idol within our own heart. And the psalmist says, this is like seeking refuge in your own destruction. 
like a soldier clinging to a, a bomb, hoping that he will be spared the battle. It's foolishness. But that's not the only way that God shows his power over Philistia. Not only does he dismantle the false deities, this God Dagon that they had set up, but the second way that God displays his power is he distresses them with disease and plague. And this is so interesting, especially in light of the fact that they just mentioned the plagues that had come upon Israel at the hand of this God. This is already in the back of their mind. Wondering if this is wise to engage with these people. And then God distresses them with disease and plague. And it comes in two forms, we're told. We're told in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them. And so the picture is God just simply putting his hand out over Philistia, over these five cities and all of their so-called glory. And God just applying a little bit of pressure down upon the Philistines. And what begins to happen? Well, we're told that they are terrified and afflicted with tumors, specifically Ashdod, where the the city where this temple of Dagon is, where the ark initially came. And we see later there are five primary cities of Philistia. Philistia. And, uh, and, And so what ends up happening is the ark becomes almost a hot potato as they begin connecting the dots and realizing, hey, where the ark of this God is, That's where we're afflicted with tumors. That's where this plague of mice is breaking out. Get this thing away from me. I don't want it here. This is only bringing about suffering for us. And so God afflicts them in these two ways, disease and plague. And exactly what the tumors are, we're not sure. There's a few different uh, takes on that. Um, Again, I'm very limited as far as Hebrew goes, but the the word... uh, has the idea of mound, but apparently this word also at times, um, without being too graphic, I guess, came to be referred to as the back end of a human being. Uh, And so some actually believe this was a form of of like hemorrhoids or something of that nature. Uh, And others say, no, this is probably tumors or boils on the body that would have began to break out. We're not given a lot of detail, thankfully. Um, It's not something you really want to think a lot about. Obviously, this was extremely miserable for the Philistines. And uh, and this began to happen across the city. And the mice began to ravage the land. We get indication of that even as they form this uh, offering to God. No doubt the mice also spreading disease. What we know is the bubonic plague. Um, is believed to, in many ways, progress through rodents, through rats and mice that carry the disease, get into the feed supplies, uh, just kind of go everywhere, as you know. Even to have a single mouse in the car can be quite devastating. My sister-in-law this past week had a mouse in the car, and I made the joke to her that, well, you better, you better hope that mouse isn't pregnant. And it uh, turns out a day later, she found a whole nest of baby mice in her spare tire, and at that point, it was a complete war. I think she had five or six traps in there. She had uh, some kind of mint oil, which apparently mice don't like the smell of mint, was in the vehicle. And in the end, she did catch the mouse. But we know the, the devastation of a, a whole infestation of mice, not only from a disease standpoint, but the, simply the, the destruction that they bring. And so God displays his power over them. And this naturally 
induces a sort of panic and fear among the people. I mean, we saw how countries react at even the possibility of sickness and disease spreading. I mean, even just the, the, the idea that, that there might be disease rapidly spreading throughout, you know, we saw uh, countries shut themselves down, locking up business owners, locking up pastors, freezing bank accounts, willingly subjecting themselves to whatever the government tells them they ought to do in order to avoid this sickness. But here the people are physically seeing the effects of God's hand upon them. And we can just imagine the, the, the chaos that would have broken out. And as they begin to realize it's because they are housing the ark of God, that's what they want to get rid of. And it just begins going from city to city to city as God's hand is upon them. It reminds us of Hebrews 10.31 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, they thought they were subduing the God of Israel, but in reality, it was them who were about to be subdued. Again, in the Psalm, Psalm 60, God speaks of the nations outside of Israel. In verse 6, we read, God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem, he says, and portion out the veil of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. He is the God of the nations, and if you declare war on the God of the nations, you find you are quickly in a losing battle. But I think there is a sense also of the Lord's mercy in this. I thought of the man uh, Naaman. You might remember the story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5. He was a Syrian general who was extremely successful, a very valiant man who had <clears throat> great victory in battle. <clears throat> Excuse me. And yet we're, we're told in 2 Kings 5 that Naaman had leprosy, uh, a terrible disease that would slowly eat away your flesh. And a Jewish slave girl in his house tells him about the prophet of God who can help him. And, and finally, he, he has to humble himself and go to Elijah and is told to bathe in the Jordan River, which he doesn't really want to because it's dirty, but finally realizes, well, if this is what I must do, then he does and, and is, is healed by the Lord. So in that sense, the leprosy that plagued Naaman was actually a sort of grace that drove him to the God of Israel, that exposed his own uh, emptiness and the, the powerlessness of his own worship as a Syrian. And I think in a similar way, the affliction that God brought upon Philistia exposes their false worship. It, it shows them the bankrupt nature of their religion and their lifestyle. I like to think that perhaps some of them actually never went back to worshiping the god Dagon. We know in some form it did continue on. But maybe even some from Philistia began to realize the emptiness of their own religion and began to fear the God of Israel. We know many times throughout the scriptures we see believers among the most unexpected places. Even in the Gospels, many times Jesus marveled at the faith, not of Israel, but of maybe a Roman centurion. Or maybe a, a woman at a well, a, a Samaritan, who, who is considered outside of the, the people of God. And there we find faith in God's grace. God is demonstrating 
that he is supreme over all gods. And if he does so by inflicting them for a season that they might turn, that is actually also a gracious thing. I love how the Apostle Paul put it. He said in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, uh, quote, unquote, gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And that is what is being put on display even to a pagan nation, the people of Philistia. And so, yes, God can use sickness and decay and pain to drive people from their idols, to drive them from their self-sufficiency, that they might come to him, the fountain of living water. And this is why I think we ought to sometimes be careful, even as we think about, you know, the smoke is so gross and discouraging, and I just wish it would go away. Um, You know, I I wish that our economy would would bounce back and that there would be more prosperity in the land. Uh, My wife um, went with her sister to Edmonton this week and was talking about uh, just kind of being shocked a bit by the the, the homelessness that is now present there. Um, This kind of homeless community, um, thousands of people living in tents and little shelters, and some of the cities are, are confounded with what to do. How do we deal with this increasing problem in our land? And we have to be careful that we don't just simply wish these symptoms away, but we actually begin to pray that God use these things to drive people to yourself. I'll expose in this country the, the emptiness of their own self-sufficiency. The emptiness of, of, of just being a, a self-made man or woman. Only in God is there true life. And even as God's children, he may discipline us at times as a loving father. It's one of the marks of being a children of God, that he disciplines us. Sometimes it can be through sickness or trial or loss or financial hardship. And we obviously don't enjoy those things, but we trust that God is still good in them. But those who harden themselves against God, his justice and power is displayed so all may know he is supreme. You see, this account is not just for the people of Philistia, but it's also for Israel. Maybe some of them were thinking, huh, maybe, maybe that God Dagon has something on our God. Maybe Dagon is actually the stronger God. And this affirms to them, no, our God is the one true God. And for every, think of the thousands of of people who've read this account and been reminded that our God is alone, the one true God. And all of this happens seemingly without Israel even knowing it. I mean, somehow uh, Samuel or whoever recorded this for us comes to learn of it. We're not really told exactly how. I'm sure it was uh, an incredible account as they've, you know, the cart comes back. They thought it was gone. And now they're thinking, what exactly happened over these past seven months? And somehow they are told the story. But lastly, we see God not only displays his power by dismantling their false deity and distressing them with disease and plague, but God also receives their atoning delivery. <clears throat> God receives the atoning delivery that they come up with. 
And this has gone on, we're told, for seven months. It's hard to imagine that it took them this long (laughs) to come up with a plan to get rid of the ark. But after seven months and much death and disease and chaos, and you can just imagine the angry people as the various kings of the cities are trying to figure out what to do, they, they come together and they come up with a plan. A plan and also a test. And it's pretty self-evident what they do. They decide that they must return this ark back to the people of Israel. But no Philistine wants to be the guy that carries the ark back to the people they thought they defeated. So they come up with a plan um, to send the ark back, but not without an offering. So they make these golden tumors representing the tumors that they were plagued with and the mice. But they're also kind of in the back of their minds thinking, maybe this is all a coincidence. Maybe it just happened that this ark came to us, we got it, and at the same time there was some kind of plague that went through the cities, and we're just making a false connection with the God of Israel and all the things that it unfolded. So the plan is uh, to return it. The test is that we'll return it in such a way that would otherwise be quite impossible. And for you who've worked with livestock, you know immediately um, the, the test here. They take two cows who are milk cows and yet with calves. So the idea is that these calves have not been weaned from the mothers. And these two cows will be tied to a cart and set on their way. Now, if the cows return back to their calves, which you know, every, every uh, fiber in their being is wanting to do, then this was all a coincidence and uh, it was really not the God of Israel that had done this. But if the cows return then we know this was, in fact, the hand of God against us. And, and so they, they come up with this plan, and they get everything together. They form the, uh, the golden offerings to the Lord and send them on their way. And there's a very fascinating um, verse in, in the middle of this plan as they are talking about all that's happened. In verse 5 and 6 of chapter 6, it says, You must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they depart? So... In some ways, they are showing more discernment than even the covenant people of God. Certainly more discernment than the entire wisdom of Egypt as they encountered this God. They're saying, listen, don't be fools. Don't harden your hearts against this God. It will not go well. He will destroy us completely if we stand in opposition. Humble yourselves. And in fact, we're told they actually glorify the God. They give glory to the God of Israel. You see, where Israel thought the glory had departed, actually God had invaded the people of, of, the, of the Philistines and there is getting glory among the pagan nations. This is an incredible picture of even missions to an extent. God not only goes to war against these people, but he is also on mission that they might glorify him. And we have this picture of an offering. 
a, a sort of atonement, if you will, to the God of Israel. Now, the Philistines obviously don't have a lot of you know, theological understanding here, but even in their own pagan systems, they understood a principle of, of sacrifice and offering to their gods, and so they assume that, that this God is angry with them, that they are guilty, there's a sense of guilt here, and that they must prepare a form of guilt offering to appease this God, that he might lift his hand off them. And God graciously receives the gift. The cows go on their way. We're told that they're lowing as they go. I mean, you can just imagine the, the, the picture. These cows that want their calves. Their calves are in the pen calling for their mothers in a way that only a young calf can do. And the cows, we're told, are lowing. So they're calling back to their calves. And yet they do not turn to the right or the left. They are set like a flint to Beth Shemeth and return the ark of God back to the people of Israel. So whether Israel thought the glory had departed, actually God had got glory over the Philistines and himself delivered the ark back to his people. And they sacrificed the cows, the, the um, cart that was used becomes the wood for the fire and the golden tumors, I assume, also offered up to the Lord and the mice and the people, the leaders of the Philistines return. And we're told the five cities in verse 17 and following, um, there was Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and one for Ekron. And so for each city the Lord inflicted and the community, they sent a tumor and these mice. So what an incredible picture of God displaying his power over the nations, over the false gods of man. And I think we need to also ask ourselves this morning, have you bowed the knee to Christ? Or are there ways in which you are also hardening your heart against him? You see, he is the creator of all things. He is the king of kings. There is nothing that's off limits to God. No part of your life, no part of your loyalty, your allegiance. It all belongs to him. And so if there are areas in which we harden ourselves against God, we refuse to submit, we refuse to confess, we refuse to, to align ourselves to his word, then we are no better than the Philistines who presume upon the Lord thinking that he can be confined or restricted, and yet God himself may war against us. Do not play the fool. Humble yourself before the Lord. Confess your sin. Acknowledge his lordship over all things. Give him the praise and honor and glory that is due his name. And this also means that there is no nation on the earth in which Christians cannot go and say to them, turn from your false gods, turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're told in, in Romans that in, in times past, God overlooked, in a way, the ignorance of the nations. But now, Peter says, he is calling men everywhere to repent and to believe upon Christ. This gives the missionary, the Christian authority to look at anybody in the face and say, listen, your sin is an offense against the living God. You need to repent and turn to Christ. And this is what got many of the 
apostles killed and executed and jailed and beaten. And so it doesn't mean that we'll be well-liked by a world in which we bring this message, but we know that there will also be some who do, in fact, have ears to hear and eyes to see that will turn and repent. We know that something far worse than tumors and mice is coming upon this world, and only Christ is the refuge. No sacrifice of bulls or gold actually removed the stain of sin. It is only the blood of Christ that can remove our guilt. And so for you as a Christian, may we uh, rejoice in God. May we give thanks to God who himself has went into battle on our behalf. And last week I made the connection in that the, the same way that the ark went into the enemy's camp, the people of God thinking that they had been defeated, that God had been subdued. We see a picture of Christ himself. All of his disciples abandon him. Some of those closest to him deny him. And yet Christ alone goes into the grave, goes into death, hangs upon the cross, bearing the weight of divine wrath. And as he is laid in the tomb, Certainly the disciples must have thought this is the darkest day of humanity. And it it certainly was. But they had no ability to understand that Christ would not remain in the grave. After he had won a victory over death, over our sin, Christ himself would come out of the grave in victory, in resurrection. You see, I think in this account, there is again this principle we find throughout the scriptures of of darkness and then light, of death and then resurrection, of apparent defeat followed by triumphant victory in God. And this is what we must preach to ourselves as Christians. God is the triumphant victor. Christ is the captain of our salvation. He has won the war by himself, has gone where we could not. Even while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And may we rejoice in that. Let us not be entertained and enticed by the many idols of this world. They are empty and powerless. And Christ will reign until every last one is brought under his feet. And then Christ will return and he will establish a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness alone dwells. All of the filth of humanity will be swept away. We must keep our eyes upon Christ, the King, our Redeemer, our Champion, who went into the tomb and came out victorious. Peter preached the gospel to the men of Israel on uh, Pentecost. And he said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. No more could the Philistines contain the ark of the living God than the tomb could contain the life of the living word. And we rejoice that God has indeed won the victory. And so let us stand in that. Let us worship him as the one true God and call the nations to repent 
and to look unto God, our Savior. Let's pray, and we'll close there this morning. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we are overwhelmed with gratitude, knowing that in so many ways we are, 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 very, uh, we are very similar to the people of Philistia. We had no claim on the lineage of Abraham. We, we had no birthright to speak of. Lord, born in, in sin, born in, in trespasses, bent on rebellion. Lord, certainly we should have experienced divine wrath for having offended you, a holy God, but you have sent Christ into the world as a man who walked perfectly under your law and went into the tomb, willingly offering up his life and was raised victorious on the third day. Lord, help us to live as a resurrected people in the power of your spirit, according to your word. Give us boldness, give us courage to stand in an evil day. And Lord, even as we consider all of the brokenness around us, all of the the difficulty and the struggle, Lord, may it drive men and women to you, the fountain of living water. Help us to be faithful witnesses whenever an opportunity arrives. Help us to, to live this out before our children. We pray you keep them from the idols of our day. Give them an undevoted heart, like that of Samuel, who, who hears you, your voice and seeks to obey it. We ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.